Hello, and welcome to episode 23 of the Venture Games podcast. I'm Chris Quaidu, and today I'm happy to introduce my next guest, Nick Pardwaj, partner at the Tribe Group. How's it going, Nick? It's going well, Chris. How about yourself, man? Good, good. Thanks for taking the time. Just to get started, uh, can you just walk me through your professional background for those folks who might not be as familiar with you? Yeah, sure thing. Um, I probably have a stranger professional <laughs> background than most. Uh, really on my end, um, you know, I, I probably can best explain my life as like a series of A-B tests for careers. Mm-hmm. And I really wasn't sure what I was supposed to do. I always thought I was going to be a lawyer out of college. Didn't look, kind of was doing my undergraduate in poli-sci and philosophy. I got bored with it within a year. I wanted to kind of start figuring out like what else could there be. And, you know, for me, I went through a lot of different paths, you know, very early in my career, I was playing like online poker. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was like really a guiding element in my end. You know, I got to learn a lot about you know, financial management, investments, understanding how to you know, beat the games, beat the systems, do mm-hmm. parallel bets. And, you know, that kind of has been sequenced in a lot of the other decisions I made. So, you know, from there, I kind of bounced around, was trying to find different passion projects. Even at one point, I was a high school teacher and really kind of enjoying that where it was just like supporting and helping one another. But from there, you know, what was really lucky and just you know, being in the proximity of Silicon Valley as I was, grew up pretty much in Northern California my whole life, you know, tech was always around me. You know, even though I was a non-technical individual, you know, I started to realize, you know, the, really the power of technology when mobile was coming out. And that's really what caught my eye. So with that, you know, that's really where I started more of my professional career. You know, I worked at a handful of like ad tech startups is where I kind of initially started. What was really interesting at that wave of mobile was that, you know, essentially when mobile apps and mobile games are coming out, the primary way to monetize was either paid uh, apps or ads at that point, because, you know, IAPs didn't exist. So I really sat at that intersection to kind of understand all the different ways you could utilize you know, advertisements for monetizations. You know, this went from offer walls, instant ads, banner ads, video ads, and you know, now you see that with playable ads in this market today. So that's kind of where I started, starting to get a sense of how the marketing ecosystem was, got to really understand how both Apple and iOS were moving forward. And then as soon as IAPs you know, got unlocked and released by the marketplace, that's really where I started to see like a much more interesting career where, you know, A, I was a massive believer in what the financial model of a free-to-play business can look like. Mm -hmm. And really at that point, we were still so early. You know, this was a time where Angry Birds was dominating the charts, Mm -hmm. right? And it was 99 cents and, you know, maybe a a few one or two upgrades later down the line. But that was tier one monetization. And then a few IAP games started to come out, you know, and I started to watch these guys Mm -hmm. and you started to see them climb up the chart really quickly. And it was fascinating because... You saw virtual economies, social game design, real rewards, real risks all coming together and building probably even a deeper social network than people even realized what was happening there in mobile. Um, of course, social systems were still getting early, but that's where then I realized, like, oh, I have to cross over to the gaming side. Um, so after doing ad network stuff and ad technology, uh, I was lucky to join Natural Motion. I joined them as a VP of monetization user acquisition. And what was really interesting with them is that they were also making the shift too. They were historically a middleware engine. So what they mm-hmm. were most well known for was doing character animation engines and projects like Star Wars, like all of Rockstar games use them as well. So, you know, all the characters are still utilizing those same engines. But of course, as a middleware company, there's only so much revenue you could make in the gaming world. So they started to recognize like, hey, we could actually like, you know, leverage our technology, our 3D prowess, and maybe start building some really cool first party games. Uh, And that was really exciting for me because it was essentially a clean slate. The other exciting part is, you know, they had brought on venture capital at that point for some really prestigious investors. And I really had an opportunity to kind of see like, what would it look like to build new free to play games that were immersive, high quality, and really player centric. Um, so during that time, we had some really big string of hits. Um, we had games like My Horse for Your Own Virtual Pet Horse was a top five grossing mm-hmm. game worldwide. We had Jenga. We had a football game, ice hockey game. And then about eight months in there, we had our first major hit. And that was CSR Racing. And that was really special because um, that game pretty much broke all the revenue records at that time. Um, you know, It was the first game to do $10 million net revenue in the first 30 days. First game to you know get a full you know worldwide Apple uh, editor's choice. Uh, we were on stage at WWDC, 
And what you started to recognize was like the first pillar of like 3D graphics was starting to become a real competitive advantage, mm -hmm. mainly because the hardware of the devices had really caught up. And that's really where natural motion thrived, you know, and from there, you know, it was really just up and up. So that chapter at natural motion really helped uncover the you know, real ceiling of the opportunity. Um, from there, you know, that company exited and got acquired by uh, Zingo for about $600 million back in 2014, 2015. Um, and from there, I really wanted to go to my next chapter, which is thinking about what were the mistakes we had made at Natural Motion was actually the intrinsic thing that I was trying to answer. And one of the biggest things that we were missing was social, was game, was guild gameplay and real multiplayer experiences. We had built CSR Racing to be a really great one-time single-player experience initially, but the economy was capped. There really wasn't good guild gameplay, not really good multiplayer, more asynchronous multiplayer at that point. But when you started to see these devices with deep backend infrastructures and being able to run real high concurrent gameplay, I started to recognize that the next era was really going to be defined instead of DAO or Mao, it was going to really be focused on PCU. Mm -hmm. So I ended up making the shift and wanted to run my own studio. So I went way deep into the trenches and ended up launching a studio called Beyond Games, mm -hmm. where I got to really learn quite a bit of like, A, running, managing a studio. We are thankful enough to raise a seed round and an A round for that organization. Um, and really, we were going after the ambitious vision of trying to build like a real-time MMO RTS on mm -hmm. mobile, which was exciting and also mm -hmm. crazy at the same time. And, you know, we learned a lot because... You know, really what we were trying to do is we were trying to be ambitious on both the GPU and CPU side, mm -hmm. right? Do really high-end 3D graphics and then do lots of computations in terms of making sure that you have millions of players in that same world. And it was the right thesis. But what we started to realize was a very simple statement was true that, you know, I heard from a good friend at Machine Zone, their CEO, Gabe Laden. Mm -hmm. He always stated to this to me, and he was true to this day, is that MMOs are team killers. Mm -hmm. MMOs are some of the hardest projects for organizations to take on. And usually if you don't have MMO as your core DNA from day one, trying to pivot and scale to it is just something where it's almost unimaginable yeah. not that work. And we felt it there beyond games. So kind of after doing that for five years, we launched a few hits. You know, we worked with Sylvester Stallone, mm -hmm. put out a couple titles, really got to see that space. But in reality, we really missed our opportunity. The truth was, is Game of War really was the ones who were killing it at that front. They bought out the market, CPIs were upside down, and we started to recognize really quickly that, you know, growth UA is going to look different forever from that mm -hmm. point on. And now you kind of have seen that's changed and really shaken up a lot of the major players in the Web2 and mobile industry. So, you know, after that, I took a break, you know, was kind of burnt out after running all this stuff. And for kind of a couple of years, I just did a bunch of random shit. Um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, I, I ran a coffee shop. <laughs> I ran um, a few like different restaurants in Italy and France. Mm -hmm. um, I also played around with like investing in a lot of cool angel idea, uh, mm -hmm. angel investment concepts, you know, from electric cars to, you know, co construction technology. Mm -hmm. And it really helped open up my eyes to all the other opportunities. But what kept coming back to me and what kept knocking on my door probably every three months mm -hmm. and probably was same for you was crypto. Crypto was that one thing that I just never got into. And mm -hmm. the real reason for that was mobile was too lucrative to look at anything else, right? right? Like we are in a space, we are building, like when you look at all the stats from a venture perspective, you know, mobile had the fastest compounded annual growth rate, mm -hmm. had the largest total addressable market. Like, why would you look anywhere else? But, you know, I was really foolish. I, I really should have spent a lot more time on it. And of course, you know, in hindsight, it's easier to say that, but, you know, I ended up correcting that about a year ago where I ended up realizing that, you know, the future of gaming and consumer entertainment is going to be Web3 defined with crypto and NFTs playing a large role. And that's now where I've ended up. I now run Tribe. Tribe's essentially a venture studio model with a handful of projects that are aiming to build disruptive social entertainment plays in Web3. We're focusing on, you know, play to earn gaming, NFTs, profile picture, and even pure art. Mm -hmm. And then behind that, we're also looking at tooling, infrastructure, and platforms as well. We're about a team of 20 at the moment right now and scaling up pretty quickly and you know, have a couple of our upcoming games coming on. So that's kind of like a quick cap on where I've been, what I'm doing, and what I'm tackling these days. Awesome. Appreciate all of the background. A lot to dive into there. One question that I just like to ask folks who have been in the industry for a while, right, is at this point, gaming gets so much attention. You know, it's 
obvious that gaming is here to stay and will be growing for a long time. You know, several years ago, people would say things even like mobile games are just a fad, you know, individual mobile games, like they have no staying power, all these other things. And, you know, now we see long-term hits like Candy Crush and other games sustaining much longer than people previously thought. And so back when you were like really in the trenches, like, you know, going back to natural motion, for example, were you expecting something like this out of the gaming industry? Like, were you expecting it to get to this size? Were you expecting free to play to be as much of a seismic shift as it is now? Because I know, you know, previously it was very controversial, even with gamers. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a fantastic question. What I could say is that I always knew it could get bigger. Mm -hmm. Did I know it could get this big? Probably not. Mm -hmm. um, like realistically, the ability for free-to-play to eat into the market shares it's done in terms mm -hmm. of both not only revenue, but the actual real more interesting metric to me is attention, mm -hmm. right? Because that's really what we're playing in this game. And you look at the amount of time and minutes spent from non-spending players, right? Because mm -hmm. the revenue only represents the attention span of the top 2% of right. players in your user base, right? The other 98% <laughs> are still sinking in time and it's it's ridiculous, right? It's mm -hmm. why you hear guys like Netflix think of Fortnite as a competitor, right? Yeah. Because it's all about attention and what you're trying to capture. And I think that's what's actually shifted quite a bit in my mindset that I didn't realize could get that big where my mom, my dad, my brothers, my siblings yeah. all have their core games and their old core product experiences. And you could even see that to this day, right? Although Wordle is not a standalone app, right? But you are seeing that digital, uh, digital gameplay be able to take over and still have huge power. And I think one of the biggest mistakes the industry made at that time was that we falsely compared free-to-play mobile games to honestly the movie industry, mm -hmm. right? It was that was pretty much the only comp we had before at that point. Also, console games as well to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. But what you'd have is these huge budgets. You'd go out and you're trying to like return that after you know sinking 50, 100 million dollars yeah. in. And if you didn't, you're writing it off as a bad investment. And if you really hit big, you know, you've 20 extra gameplay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And really the reason why free-to-play took a long time to understand it was it was really the concept of live operations came much later into the force, right? Understanding how to run a live project and run sequencing of leaderboards, events, guilds, social gameplay, because what gaming really is, is games are just like goal-oriented code. Mm -hmm. And if you create a really good game, you could also build like a very like stronger social network than anyone ever imagined. And I think that's the other aha moment when I realized on free to play mobile is going to be the next big thing is when I started realizing people were making deeper virtual friendships than they were in the physical world. Yeah. And that was happening back in 2012, 2013. And then I started to manifest crazy in 2015, 2016. And that's where I started to realize that power. But yeah, for me to say in 2012, 2013, that I knew it'd be the size, absolutely not. And it's, right. it's been amazing. And at the same time, it also gives me a lot of hope on what I see in the Web3 phase, which I'm sure we can get into a little bit later. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, you also mentioned you've been an early adopter to a lot of things. And so one of the things that you mentioned actually is poker. Historically, I've been a, a pretty big poker player, not like a huge, huge, like online player. Though I have dabbled online, but I was playing, you know, quite a bit of live games of, of decent size. And you know, you mentioned the point about games are getting significantly tougher. And at this point, you know, you have to be very, very well studied, use all the software, et cetera, to beat the games. But I know a lot of poker players were actually early to adopt Web3 because certain sites, you know, there was easy on-ramps through crypto and, you know, people were buying Bitcoin to deposit and all these things that, you know, probably seemed very, very foreign and strange at the time. And so did you, by any chance, run into crypto during your online poker days? I'm not as much because I played online poker too early, right? Mm. I essentially abandoned online poker mm -hmm. probably by 2008, 2009-ish. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and the real reason for that is like my window of opportunity was, and to be very transparent, I actually wasn't the best player by any means mm -hmm. on why I was successful. I was successful because I was multi-tabling, mm -hmm. probably better than most, right? Mm -hmm. So I was giving up edge, playing a lot of lower state tables. Yeah. And but playing 30, 40 of them at the same time. Mm. And, and that was really what my advantage was. And 
the good thing at the time when I was playing poker, this was like the era of like Chris Moneymaker, like yeah. a really large run. So ESPN started putting poker. And what that just meant was a bunch of fish came into the market, mm-hmm. right? People who wanted to be the next one. So it was really easy to beat the game at that point, yeah. right? And then if that window started to close up because they just people started getting smart, math mm-hmm. started to come in, tools and bots started to play a role as well too. So, you know, what was surprising though, is that although I was early, most of my friends who are still there, mm-hmm. I've now recently talked in the last few years and you're right. The yeah. overlap in that Venn diagram of like crypto degen and poker degen <laughs> is almost one-to-one yeah. now, right? Like to a certain extent, it hits all of that element of speculation, utility mm-hmm. that you could kind of find in a well-balanced poker game. You kind of see that as well to a certain extent but just uncapped games, right? Right, Which is kind of insane as well. Mm -hmm. So when you kind of see all of that stuff, I think people get pretty excited about that opportunity. And I actually believe that those prototypes or those like player profiles are very similar. If you look at free-to-play whales, crypto whales, and, and honestly, poker whales, there's a lot, a lot of overlap. And that's what's actually really exciting because... I think Web3 is going to unlock new player prototypes, mm-hmm. right? We have to almost redefine, uh, if you're familiar, like Bartle's player prototypes that's yeah. been out there for 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. You know, that almost needs to be redefined now in Web3 for a lot of different reasons. And that's super exciting because talking to a lot of my poker buddies, you get to get that expectation and see what they're unveiling, what they're uncovering. Mm-hmm. And it's very much very crypto degen mindset as well. Yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree. It's really interesting how much overlap there is in the gaming community the DGen gambling community and the crypto community. Last thing on poker though, quickly, you know, for a while and, you know, I think several years, even before there was so much interest in gaming and Web3, there was a lot of interest in using blockchain technology to create some sort of poker software, like an online poker software. Is that something that you have thought about at all? And even if not building it yourself, like, do you have any thoughts on just like the opportunity? It absolutely exists. We built a concept. We actually have a design for it. The mm-hmm. only reason why we've kept it in our back pocket is that it just comes down to, do you want to fight a two-front war with both gambling yeah. and crypto law yeah. at the same time? It's like, <laughs> it's a very interesting beast. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff you'd want to optimize for, probably build like a Malta-based entity or a yeah, yeah. Isle entity at this mm-hmm. point. Um, but I do believe it exists. And I think it's about rethinking like the economic model, right? Mm-hmm. So like the, the secret that I'm intrigued with is, how do you redistribute a new poker platform that has zero rate mm-hmm. is kind of interesting, right? Yeah. But then the question that begs is then what is the economic upside for the partners to hold it? And it might be holding the token currency that the mm-hmm. games are actually being built on. And it can be a really interesting way to kind of then redefine what poker revenue looks like where you put poker players in charge of the token ownership mm-hmm. of the free floating economy. And I think that's actually really compelling, right? Because you know, if you've been a poker online DGen, right, you're always <laughs> optimizing for your best rate backs, right. right? Like, how are you going to get your percentages back? Yeah. Imagine if you created a scenario where it's like there's zero rake and you earn while you play and create a good functional economy that allows for that. Mm-hmm. It could be really powerful. I think the big thing to understand right now, though, is that we're still a quite a bit away from that. Right now, the current wave of crypto whales is traders, not players, right? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the hard thing to understand for most people is that it's very speculative in a lot of manners. But because it's a trader mindset, what ends up happening is most of these guys don't want to own XYZ NFT in a project mm-hmm. and spend hours in it every week. They don't have time for that, right? They want to manage a thousand nft shit coin portfolio right <laughs> and being able to spread it with very passive return we're kind of in the, what we define it as at tribe is we're in an own to earn philosophy right now mm-hmm. and play to earn is still around the corner we're mm-hmm. still defining it and what it means to a sustainable level and i think that's going to take time until more mass market adoption happens but i think that happens in the next 12 to 24 months in a lot of interesting ways okay mm-hmm. so Last thing before we dive real deep into gaming and Web3, but just a personal question. How did you get into games originally? And are you still a gamer today? And if you are, what are you playing? Awesome question. (laughs) Um, How did I get into games originally? Like, I actually got into games through, like, traditional sports. I was always a big Mm -hmm. sports fan. So, like, Madden was my entry point to Mm -hmm. a lot of this stuff, Um, you know, where I really started to get deeper into it. Of course, I had, like, early SENS, you know, Super mm-hmm. Nintendo, Nintendo systems, played those games, they were fun. But I think Madden really started to unlock what I felt like 
a metaverse would look like in that mm -hmm. first one, right? Where you could do manage a whole franchise, right? It was really interesting as a concept. And that really is what started to pull me in. And then I started getting into balancing. And really mm -hmm. that's where like Warcraft 1 and 2, Starcraft 1 and 2, mm -hmm. Diablo 1 and 2, really the big Blizzard plays were really yeah. my soul. Like love those games, love to understand it. PvP, GVG, PvE, all those mechanics were all there to a certain extent. And you were just trying to see what would flower, what would sequence, what would be the strongest play. And those really excited me. And that's where I became like super intrigued with gaming and what the potential would be. In regard to, am I still a gamer? I, I am a gamer, but yeah. like I share it's like as soon as you become a builder of games, you almost start playing games pretty consistently too. Yeah. Because when I play games, I don't play them for fun anymore. I play <laughs> them to dissect. I'm like, right. wow, this is a really cool mechanic. Or, hey, that's a really interesting investment. Or, hey, mm -hmm. that's a really cool feature. And it's kind of ruined that for me. Mm -hmm. I still do play one game, and that's FIFA. I'm oh, like nice. a huge FIFA guy. I think that's one of the most balanced sports games I've ever played. I'm a Leo Messi stan, and that is he's literally the best player to play in that game. So yeah. That's literally probably the only game I play, and I almost use it like almost in a meditative state. It's really cool because mm -hmm. I use it just to see like where am I when I play against the computer or other players, and mm -hmm. I can actually find little pieces and players of flow. So that's really the only game I truly play for fun, but mm -hmm. I do have like over a thousand titles in my Steam catalog. I yeah, have yeah. all the console system, but I probably won't open up Elden Ring for like six months. That's yeah. my problem, right? Because <laughs> I'm scared. I don't got a hundred hours of this game. <laughs> so that's like where my sadness comes in is that once you've gone to the other side, it's been hard to play. How about yourself? Do you yeah. still find time to play games? I hear you completely, especially actually on Elden Ring. So I'm typically a multiplayer player, but for these like, you know, hey, this is the best game ever made or hey, this is the best game in however many years, even if it's single player, I just like have to play it to see. And I've probably played Elden Ring for like two or three hours. And I can just tell how like massive it is. And so I know, you know, it's not a game I'm going to be able to grind, grind, because I just don't have the time to do so. But it will be a nice world for me to explore when I do have some off time. And then the thing on FIFA I wanted to mention, I actually used to be a pretty big FIFA player, just like with my friends, like in, in high school and college. And we were so competitive, me and this group of three of my other friends. <laughs> Once when one of my friends won this like small tournament, we were playing just with the four of us. He literally printed out a contract that he wanted us to sign to admit that he was the best FIFA player. <laughs> like we were at that level. <laughs> I love it. It reminds me of like kind of when, uh, Chad Ochocinco, if you remember the football player, would like yeah. he'd actually tweet out he was the best FIFA player, <laughs> and he would actually drive up to people in homes <laughs> who would challenge him. He'd be like, "Let's play!" I'm like, "That's great!" Like I actually yeah. want to. I hope one day I could play it, but like I love it because that's what you really end up having. That's kind of why oh, yeah. I love FIFA is that your group of four to six friends, there's always one person's the best, and yeah. they believe they can beat anyone else. Yeah. And then when you start stacking it up, it's huge. Like I'm really good versus my brother and my right. family members at this point, but like. I suck at doing any of the good moves. I'm yeah, just yeah. really good at positioning Messi for good run mm -hmm. and nice little kicks in the top left right corner and great at free kicks. Those are like really my only special yeah. but I just love the balance, man. And like, honestly, Madden is still fairly well balanced mm -hmm. too, but there's something pure in the game of FIFA. And like, it's my favorite sport now to watch, which is surprising because yeah. it was always basketball, football, baseball for me initially, but now yeah. FIFA's taken my whole life. No, I hear you. FIFA just like feels amazing. It's just like beautiful to play and watch. Okay, so, you know, on this whole gaming and Web3 stuff, you know, I think you've seen a lot of the builders in the space largely coming from one of two sides. On the one side, you have folks who are more, you know, you could define as crypto native. And so they've been in the crypto space for a while, and they see the opportunities of the intersection of gaming and Web3. And so they're tailoring their games to appeal to those sorts of audiences, right? Because that's what they know. And then on the other side of things, you have more gamer native folks, right? So these are people who have been building in the gaming industry for a while. They've seen the potential of the technology, and so they're starting to implement it. But they're really focused on first building a good game and then implementing crypto. What do you generally think about the two approaches? Yeah, I think both approaches have a role and a play. But mm -hmm. what I've seen, though, with the organizations that are crypto native versus like game native, let's mm -hmm. just like use those terminologies at the moment. What ends up happening is that the game natives tend to struggle because they have a lot of incorrect assumptions on other elements that come with Web2 game development. Mm -hmm. So like they have wrong assumptions on economy design. 
because essentially when you have an ability, if you say do create a token and now there's money out, mm -hmm. balancing that economy is a very different beast than a free to play one sided right. economy. And I see a lot of people underestimate that on the game native side. The second thing the game native guys are really underestimating is growth. Right, like they really believe that you could buy ads when in reality, if a crypto whale saw an ad on Facebook for an NFT, it's a bearish single yeah. for them, right? They, they would not be minting that Absolutely. and they don't realize that. Like a good good example of this is, you know, a really big gaming company, private company, Jam City mm -hmm. launched, you know, just a few weeks ago, champions.io yeah. and right, this is a billion dollar organization and they didn't even mint out. Like they, they couldn't even sell their entire 10,000 supply. And, and, and that's like, you know, a, a huge element that they need to understand. And then the third problem that game natives are, are, are kind of also like struggling to understand is the cost of the infrastructure to do stuff on chain, right? Like they're not thinking through the long-term consequences of the smart contract design that do put very clear restrictions on what you can and cannot do in the future. Mm -hmm. And they're assuming that a lot of it is modular, but like the modularity requires either large amounts of cost, or you'd be going against like the immutable nature of mm -hmm. what Web3 is supposed to be. So it just feels like when you're coming from a game native, you end up hitting more larger obstacles because you haven't gone through what a crypto user is actually seeking. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of why, you know, when I looked at this market today, like it's also important to look at the metrics, right? And like, these aren't one-to-one -one metrics, with right. you know, pretty good generalizations is that, you know, if you look at the top, you know, 4% of Bitcoin holders, right? They mm -hmm. own about 80% of the supply, mm -hmm. right? You look at the top 10% of NFT holders, they own about 60, 70% of the supply or NFT value as well. Mm -hmm. We're in an era of whale games and it's really important to understand who your whales are. And then that becomes that fourth chasm of game native versus crypto native. Mm -hmm. Game native think that whales are looking for like explicitly status, right? Mm -hmm. Right. That's what every game is built like game of war, be the biggest leader, own the biggest empire, have the most power. That was really driving a lot of the whale decisions there, right? In crypto, the whale decisions are, does this generate me ROI, mm -hmm. right? It's an investor mindset right now, at least in this marketplace. Not saying that you're, they're trading these assets like they're you know, effectively investors, but they are thinking about ROI. Right. They are thinking about the speculative value. So it's important to complete that, you know, and, and cross that chasm to really be able to speak to those users. And if I were in anyone's shoes, it's also really important to go look at the numbers of wallets, right? Like mm -hmm. you see these numbers that there's a hundred million wallets, right? But that's not really a real number, yeah. right? What's really important is like, how many of those wallets actually engage in NFTs? Right. How many of those ones are ongoingly engaging in NFTs? Mm -hmm. And then how many of those are actually ongoingly engaging in PDE NFTs, right? Or play to earn or gaming yeah. NFTs. That number gets really small, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's really realistically like, sub 100,000 meaningful wallets that exist. So it's a very different pool of user base that you're also scaling for. So mm -hmm. what I try to recommend people is that you need to work really hard to build that crypto native lens because it's an area that they've probably never been exposed to. And if you try building without it, you just run into the red flags. And I've seen it, I, you know, I've had a few companies that have tried to, you know, I tried to advise, I tried to share, mm -hmm. but they're just trying to repeat the web two formula. And I think that's what, it's kind of the beauty and, and the scariness nature of Web3 is that it intrinsically requires a divide for you to commit to one or the other. Right. While, while a lot of the Web2 guys are trying to intrinsically straddle, of course, their existing ownership while still getting a piece. And historically, that just never worked well right. when a chasm was presented in tech, right? And I think that's where you're seeing a lot of people fall into. And it doesn't help when, like, you know, US guidance on crypto <laughs> is really weak as well. So yeah. you get all these other compounding challenges on the legal side too. Just curious, do you consider yourself coming more from the crypto native or gaming native or something in between? I'm now crypto native, like is what I would, tr I hope that I could claim. <laughs> yeah. Like I had to go be a DJ, right? Like yeah. <laughs> what is the most valuable thing I've done? And what I recognized in crypto is that mm -hmm. I had to think like these guys. So I had to be like that. So what I did is I spun up a pretty large portfolio and started to buy tier one blue chip NFTs mm -hmm. just for access to these communities, access to these groups. 
I had a phase where I was looking at shit coins. I had a phase <laughs> that I was looking at really speculative NFTs. I had a phase where I was looking at alt chains, right? Like yeah. I got NFTs on Tezos, <laughs> Wax, like uh, Avalanche. I even have Cardano NFTs, right? Like I, I've, I've done it all. But the real reason and the real value was is that I started to get into private telegram groups of these mm, channels. Mm-hmm. And it was that's when the real exchange of ideas came in. And that's where you can become a real crypto native because you could understand their motivations, their mm-hmm. prioritization, their thought process. And I think that's what's really needed because what am I really trying to build for our first few games, at least in the era of 2022, mm-hmm. it's very much crypto native game. So I'm actually trying to reject all my game native design. Yeah. And at least because I had a nice break from game design for the last two to three years, it's been really helpful to do that and almost come with a clean slate, but it's tough because you're retraining. You have to call out certain actions, right? Even a few of my partners who worked at like major companies like Machine Zone and Wildlife, mm-hmm. we go through the same exchange where it's not only me echoing it to them, they have to echo it back to me. So we remember because mm-hmm. it does take a lot of retraining. And that's mm-hmm. actually one of the hardest parts of building in Web3 as a historical gaming organization or existing gaming organization is that some part of your organization, like 10 or 15% will understand Web3. Mm-hmm. The other are just following along. And that can work up until mint, but it gets really hard post-mint to manage the live ops because Mm -hmm. motivations, goals, and changes are all very different, right? And like the traditional like three pillars of gaming, right, has always been like pay to progress, create variable outcomes, and like some sense of control, right? Like those Mm -hmm. have always been the three pillars of gaming. And you almost have to redesign those pillars in web three. And I think that's what's been so uncomfortable for a lot of the Web2 natives or game natives that I've seen thus far. Mm -hmm. So a lot of really interesting stuff to dive into. One specific point, you know, I would love to hear just a bit more on is this idea of maintaining engagement after the mint of an NFT, right? So like there have been all these projects where they get super hyped up before mint, they mint out in, you know, three minutes and then and they tell everyone about how quickly they sold out and then you know the quote-unquote fud begins and everyone's like you know when token when utility etc etc so how do you think about that and it, it doesn't necessarily have to be with the gaming nft but just generally yeah i mean this is actually where my web 2 background is helpful right mm-hmm. and this is just all live ops right and mm-hmm. it's the terminology we use is sequencing right mm-hmm. like you need to be able to have a sequence of events from you know, pre-reveal all the way to post-mint, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's like five key stages there, right? There's like V1 hype community building, Mm -hmm. right? V2 whitelist and curation of your initial minters. V3 is public mint and and pre-reveal process. Mm -hmm. Stage four is post-mint and first game. And stage five is enduring game, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to be thinking about those sequences from day one. So what our approach is at Tribe is a little bit different. Right now, what most people are using NFTs for is an alternative to fundraising to be transparent, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, great, let me put out a short-term concept, probably worked on less than one to two months, right? And realistically, it's just getting the art out to have a generative asset that brings in initial capital that can then be utilized to drive and build utility. Mm -hmm. And cool, but like me and you know this, it's (laughs) super hard to build a company. It's super hard to scale. (laughs) It doesn't even matter if you have money. It's can you even allocate that money, right? Like a lot of these projects that I'm even advising and talking to, these guys have like five or $6 million. I'm like, Mm -hmm. dude, that's bigger than 99% of seed round, (laughs) like pre-2020, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you think about it, like that's killer. Like you can do a lot with that. You can have a 30-man team running, but like they don't know that. They don't Mm -hmm. know how to structure it because it's usually two buddies, right? Or three buddies who come together and just really have like a passion project. And of course there are bad actors. There's bad actors in an ecosystem. So really the way I try to recommend to people is that, you know, if you can, and again, you have to be in a position of privilege or ability to have Mm -hmm. capital. The goal is you kind of actually have to invest into the project Mm -hmm. yourself because what we're trying to do with our projects is that our pitch isn't, hey, invest in us for us to build it. Mm-hmm. invest in us for us to scale it right so the terminology we use is we're you know we're packaged to play right from mint right and that's a really important concept that i think will be a market differentiator in the long run right mm-hmm. those who actually have product experiences that are coming out within 72 hours of the mint reveal and sequencing the next 90 days and i mm-hmm. think that's the other critical thing 
is that if you can get your NFT project to maintain and sustain a floor for 30 days, mm -hmm. congrats, you're one of the top 1% of projects to yeah. do that. And then if you get it and sustain it for 90 days, congrats, you're in the top 0.001% yeah. of projects, right? And those are insane numbers to hear out loud because those are given or foregone conclusions in mobile free to play, right? Like I'll have a 30 day retaining game. I'll mm -hmm. have a 90 day retaining game to a certain extent, but here in crypto, right? It's just, what's the next shiny object, right? So yeah. the attention span is much lower. And then of course, like the value of these holders are willing to constantly shift due to the high liquidity of these marketplaces offer. So I think like for a lot of users, they just have to really start thinking through like the real work starts right after mint. And if you could put them into a sequence that is very interesting for Web3, right? Like the current meta is staking, mm -hmm. right? Build a mechanic where you could stake and take custody of the NFT and in return, you're receiving rewards. Most likely fungible tokens is right now the current meta. Cool, that's at least a V1 of it. But then how do you take that further, right? And we haven't even seen mechanics really well done in terms of crafting, right. using. We haven't really seen any guild-based gameplay mechanics at this point. We're barely at like V1 Game Boy like mm -hmm. experiences at this point, right? Yeah. Like even when you look to Axie Infinity, Axie Infinity is a game that we've all played 20 years ago, <laughs> right? It's just well done for a crypto native. And yeah. like, I'll give them a lot of uh, credit. They built an amazing infrastructure, right? But this is also where they're struggling because they mm -hmm. don't have web two economy design or game design for the core start of the game. And you can see that's actually hurting them with their own economy as well. So in that balance, the question just begs is if you're at least building an NFT project, have a 30 day sequence already ready to go post mint, mm -hmm. if not 90 days, that's kind of the goal and challenge we aim for. Got it. Okay. And just playing devil's advocate quickly, why invest in a project when you can rug, right? And so you met, you made the point, right? Like $5 million is quite a lot, a lot of money in the terms of being able to build a game, right? But in the terms of just like a normal person's life, $5 million is a tremendous amount of wealth, right? And so why would a developer want to stick around? And then how can gamers who are trying to explore this space who aren't crypto native try to protect themselves from getting rugged? Yeah, great question. To rug or not to rug is always <laughs> going to be a uh, individual conversation. Mm -hmm. What I can share is like what I believe is the opportunity. Mm -hmm. The reason not to rug is that the individuals who understand that if they can sequence multiple standalone Web3 properties, mm -hmm and coalesce them as an entity or a shared identity will become multi-billion dollar startups in this space, mm -hmm. right? But you do have to think through it as a venture lens. The second reason not to rug is the philosophy of player-owned economies and rethinking through the structure of equitable relationships between player, developer, and investor. And if you do believe in the power of Web3, there's a real interesting opportunity to think through the rebalance of that allocation of capital and that allocation of ownership. That is truly empowering, right? Like, I know we all talk about owning your digital assets. Woo, that's really cool. But what's really cooler is, what if that economy was governed and owned by 80 to 90% ownership of your player base, mm -hmm. right? You then reverse the relationship that I think could be mutually healthy, where you as the developers are on the same side as your team right as your players right and that's historically never been the case right gamers have always been at least in the free-to-play world especially mm -hmm. right a a core conflict between gamers and developers right yeah. and it's brought down some of the bigger games right like game of war actually real big reason why they dropped is they got too greedy at the end, <laughs> right they really really fine-tuned the economy where mm -hmm. they essentially were trying to extract as much cash as possible right mm -hmm. and it's sad because game of war actually had one of the biggest moats ever built in gaming mm -hmm. they had the largest aggregation of whales into a single <laughs> social network and they let it all go for cash extraction for a 90 to 120 day period yeah. at the end of that life cycle and that's what intrinsically is missing in the Web 2 world that I think can be corrected to Web 3. So if mm -hmm. you believe in that philosophy, I think there's something really empowering to do. Mm -hmm. The third thing as well is just restructuring business ownership is really what I'm also interested in as well. 
So like in gaming, and you'll know this as well, gaming's honestly historically been one of the worst at treating their employees, <laughs> right? Like they're known at, you know, you, you have deadlines, you're running on under, uh, under crazy dates, crazy yeah. pressure. And then the worst part is almost no equity is shared with a lot of core team members, yeah. right? Especially if you look at larger studios. Bonuses may be there, but they're limited to like only a few core participants. Mm -hmm. But imagine if you could build a game where people are written into the smart contract with their equity with upfront mint price, ongoing royalties, secondary sales. There's just a really interesting business model you can make that is truly fair and is truly equitable because... I think the closest we come to it is cap table structures. And if you have a good CEO, he will do their, his best to take care of almost everyone at the organization, right? Mm -hmm. But it's still closed off. These aren't transparent cap table structures. They could change depending on voting rights and all this mm -hmm. other stuff that come into this game. It could be quite drastic. But in a Web3 world, I think you could redo it where art can actually get its fair share. Right, because historically in gaming, artists almost never got equity, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's also empowering to me. So those are the three reasons not to run, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> at least that drive me at this point. And but I think this is also a fair question to ask: is that consumers are making it too easy for people to run, which then goes mm -hmm. into the second part of this conversation: is we need better diligence, right? Yeah. So like when you ask the question of what should somebody be looking into a project, mm -hmm. right? Well, there's a handful of elements, right? But I think the biggest thing to understand is that, is there history in this project? Mm -hmm. Have they been thoughtfully thinking through this, right? Like one of the easiest things to do is just go check out when they grabbed the domain name, right? Mm -hmm. um, and when they actually like issued it. They issued it in the last one <laughs> to two weeks. That's probably a bad sign, right? Yeah. And like, weirdly, I tell people this and they're like, oh shit, this is actually the best signal I found. I'm like, yeah, it's actually a good signal because if they thoughtfully didn't figure out the name until the last <laughs> minute and weren't holding on to it, it just shows the sequencing of their actions yeah. are in an incorrect pace. The second stuff that's really important that needs to start happening is that there needs to be more thoughtful conversations between, honestly, people like myself and you asking hard questions to mm -hmm. Web3 project owners. The problem right now we have is that we're still in this influencer pump and dump kind of schemes right yeah. now where, you know, people will become like bring people onto their shows because they're getting paid to be on their shows, right? Mm -hmm. Like, or they're incentivized to put them on their shows and that stuff's not transparent. But like, if you could actually start building and we do this with a few private groups in our telegram, we actually invite founders on. We do a live Q&A with about 100 of our whales listening in. Mm -hmm. And then we can then make, you know, an interesting own decision of ourselves based on the questions that were asked. You know, the questions are driven usually by one or two people uh, for about 80% of the questions and then open up to the public and mm -hmm. the group for any kind of shared questions. And surprisingly, just going through that, it solves 99% <laughs> of rubs, right? Like, if you just put me in front of the Pixelmon founder, right, be like, hey, <laughs> Who's your community engineer? Hey, where did this asset come from? Hey, do you actually understand anything about deploying on WebGL? I guarantee you would get no, 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 no. And you would know not to mint that thing. And yeah. I think this is where the unhealthiness of speculation yeah. unfortunately encourages rugs, right? And mm -hmm. we need to be a lot better about it as an organization and expect. And that's kind of why, like, tribe to a certain extent is trying to do mm -hmm. this for the industry not saying that we're going to be the standard by any means mm -hmm. but like we're going to show our project with the game loop already running mm -hmm. interactable scenes right the ability to engage with the content and i think that should be the expectation moving forward of course you don't need a full playable game mm -hmm. show me a game dev with a prototype that he could build in two weeks most good unity devs can do that right mm -hmm. it could be boxes but i just want to see the game mechanics working and see progress and that's the other big thing that people need to request, progress of execution, mm -hmm. right? That's not ever being shared in any of these scenarios. And if you could just ask, like, what did they show us two weeks ago? What are they showing us today? Is it the same thing? And with just more marketing art, <laughs> probably a bad signal, right? Mm -hmm. and, and it's just really common sense that does come to it. But it's tough because the biggest problem you have is then you do have the influencers, you do have the shillers. And when mm -hmm. you're coming new to the space, it's hard to like honestly ask yourself, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing, right? So like the really the only other signals I'd share as well is that you want to look at like small little notes, like A, how many people are allocated to the whitelist? How many uh, NFTs are allocated to the team? Mm -hmm. How is the team using their fund? Have they created a multi-sig wallet? Um, have they created a plan of dispersion of funds? Is it all going out on day one to the team or is it being held into the, the reserves? 
these are the other expectations and questions that need to be answered. And I think if you're able to like honestly talk to a few of these founders, and most of them will reach out and respond to you via DMs because you're an, almost an investor to them, yeah. right? They're going to want to respond to a lot of these questions. And I think that's really where you can start giving a little bit of guidance on what's there. But that is something we're working on transparently and are, are trying to build a guide that we'll release in about two to three weeks on just some of the positive signals we've seen in the market based mm-hmm. off what's a good project that can merit the value that you're seeking from it for your investment. Yeah, no, I think you made a lot of great points. You know, I think in many ways, the sort of you know crypto and NFT community is actually quite welcoming and quite willing to help people but on the other side of things there are a lot of bad bad actors right like there are people that literally are just trying to take advantage of new people it's actually really interesting i've joined discords of some projects which i won't name which were obviously rugs and there are people who are knowledgeable who are literally saying hey this is the most obvious rug ever do not buy this and then someone else is like, oh, like when, when's the mint? You know, like they don't really care. And, you know, I would agree with you. Like a lot of it is driven by greed and by speculation. And so you definitely do need to do a, a little bit of your own research. So, you know, going back to this bifurcation, right? We talked a lot about the crypto native side of things, but going back to the pure gamers, what are some of the things that you think are missing from the Web3 games that we have today? And how do you think we can bridge the gap between, you know, Web 2 or more traditional gamers and Web 3, right? Because there is a lot of tension, despite all the benefits that you have brought up. You know, a lot of gamers are still like, this is a money grab. This is stupid. You know, why do we need NFTs, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, you know, when it comes to this tension, it's really easy to understand the tension. I think Mm -hmm. that's important to address, right? Like, Let's also be honest, free-to-play has essentially abused users as well, too, right? Yeah. And, they, and they've seen it, and Wales has seen it as well, too. There have been numerous times, right? Like, you know, if we go back to, like, the lineage of, like, Game of War, where did Game of War get all its early users? It's because Kabam abused their users <laughs> in Kingdoms of Camelot, right? Which was the first game that actually was able to be kind of somewhat of an open-world game. Mm-hmm. And because they mismanaged the economy, all, a majority of those players ended up rolling over to Game of War, right? And then Game of War mismanaged those users, and now those users have dispersed across multiple properties mm-hmm. at this point. So it's important to note that's been the case. So, like, what does crypto sound like to these guys? It's like, oh... It's now uncapped prices on the same stuff I want to buy, right? Like, oh God, that's the worst thing I could hear, right? Because like, I'm not going to lie. Like I'm in crypto and you try to, if I, if you ask me to explain to a layman why a board ape is worth $400,000, like I'm going to struggle with it. I really will in that manner. And I think it's only going to be harder. And I think that's the other important thing is that crypto press is really poorly done. Mm-hmm. We should not be embracing these hundred ETH outliers as the primary narrative in the story. Yeah. Like, Great for CryptoPunks, great for Bored Apes, but that shit is not indicative of 99% of the market, right? And it sucks when we use it as that catalyst because then it also fuels into the greed that we talked about earlier, right? Because no one wants to miss the next Bored Ape, right? That's kind of the feeling here that FOMO is real. But, you know, it's important to acknowledge that, you know, because we've been abused as free-to-play players, right? And then you add uncapped spending limits on top of that, you're gonna have to unfortunately see a lot of friction behind it. So how does that actually need to be solved? I think the question is, is how can a crypto native company solve it? And how does a web two native company solve it are two different paths, right? Mm -hmm. And I think if you're a crypto native company, you kind of have to think like Bezos, like, you know, when he says like, your margin is my opportunity, Mm -hmm. right? Like in this kind of same extent, it kind of exists like, the opportunity for a lot of crypto native people is that web two audiences are locked in with that the, those companies mm-hmm. those companies can't really make any new decisions right and like you've seen ubisoft retract we've seen all these guys retract this is the opportunity for crypto natives to now be like hey let's build player-centric economies mm-hmm. i believe that will actually be the future where you can design an economy that shows that we are not the primary holders, let, let alone even main holders of this. It means that it's run by you, you as the player. If we can help govern and find utility for this, you can never be rubbed. You can never be dumped on, right? Mm. Because that's the other issue that also exists in crypto, right? Is that the economic alignment isn't great still with tokens to this day, right? Mm-hmm. Like technically you could see on some of these larger play to earn games on their cap table, you'll see a VC owns 20% of the token yeah. supply. You'll see the founders own 20% of the token supply. 
And if I'm telling you from an economist perspective that any single entity owns more than 2% of my supply, I'm scared. That's mm-hmm. scary. That's like exactly the right discipline to be dumped on. And, you know, and that's just an important thing to understand. I'm not saying that everyone's going to be a bad actor, but that's never going to be a healthy makeup right. for an economy. So what I see a lot of crypto native opportunities are going to be is that how do you think about the fungible token to be owned by the players and then the NFT and the equity to be maybe owned by external investors mm-hmm. so that there's actually a clear understanding of where ROI exists, but they're mutually dependent upon one mm-hmm. another. So mm-hmm. I think the other thing that, you know, if you are really going to solve for tension, you need to be able to speak to Web3 natives and build almost a tutorial infrastructure to onboard it, right? Mm-hmm. Because that is now your obligation. You actually have to run people through wallet discovery, mm-hmm. understanding how to interact with the marketplace, and then being able to under- interact with Discord. These are all three new variables <laughs> that almost no Web2 gamer is traditionally using outside of voice chat on Discord, right? 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 But they're not really engaging in text-based chat mm-hmm. in these large groups and communities. So that also becomes the onus that Web2 game companies need to invest in, right? So it's like, Build a 10-minute video on how to build a ma- you know, get your first MetaMask wallet. Build a five-minute video on what a ledger is. And mm-hmm. really try to be on the player side. I think the last and most important thing, there's the honest truth for a Web2 company, put it under a separate entity, right? Mm-hmm. Like you got to make sure and understand at this point that no matter what you do, you're going to be branded in a negative mm-hmm. light by your user base. So give yourself the cleanest opportunity. Just allow people to look at you with a clean slate, clean set of eyes on that front. And again, not not, not legal advice by any means, right? But <laughs> yeah. you know, this is what a lot of Web2 companies did. You know, they still do it to this day when they're doing beta tests in Canada or Australia. It's under a different sub entity mm-hmm. because they don't want to either disturb their user base or get other people to see what they're building. Vice versa, I think that becomes interesting in Web3 because... Web 2 branding is not meaningful in Web 3, right? Mm-hmm. It really isn't. Like, to a certain extent, if you say you're Zynga co-founder, there's some weight to it in Web 3, but at the same time, it's also negative. Like, yeah. fuck, you're Zynga co-founder, right? <laughs> so you just kind of got to understand that in those spectrums, there's a really important need to have narrative. Mm-hmm. I think the last and most important thing is the CEOs or founders of these organizations need to be present in their community. And almost none of them are. And that's kind of the other thing that's a real disappointment with a lot of the Web2 guys coming over. They put, you know, a head of community to be in charge. But people want to hear the vision from the people running it and the structures, right? It doesn't really matter behind that. And I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with, right? Because, of course, compliance issues and mm-hmm. like, you know, not wanting to always be publicly facing towards your customers is definitely something not built for a traditional Web2 CEO. But that's actually a skill set and a competitive advantage for a Web3 CEO, being able to engage and communicate directly with your community and be accessible. And that's a really different type of CEO, right? And that's what's kind mm-hmm. of surprising here is that you almost need to find someone who's community oriented, when in reality, most CEOs we know in Web2 aren't truly community oriented, right? It's something that they would delegate to somebody else. So these are some of the gaps that I think can help. You know, of course, there's you know, some legislation would help to kind of Mm -hmm. clear up what we're doing. That's always helpful. And then, you know, the last big thing is you need one big win. We haven't had a big win in a long time, right? Like if you actually think about a play to earn game that's been successful, it's hard to point to many, right? There's of course guys who are raising large, large Mm -hmm. amounts of rounds, right? You have parallel, you have Axie infinity, but really there's not been a game that you would want to tell your friends about, yeah. right? Uh, for the game's mm-hmm. purpose only, right? People say like, you should buy this because there's alpha behind this, let's <laughs> go get this. But yeah. we haven't got to game utility yet. And I think that's going to start coming. You know, guys like Zed Run started to scratch at it. Mm-hmm. I think guys like Axie Infinity as well. You see NBA Top Shot kind of going on the card side, but yeah. you know, that really didn't manifest in the manner that they hoped. And now we're just kind of left with kind of empty play to earn games at the moment right now. Mm-hmm. There are a few good projects that I'm intrigued with, guys that I look at like Ether Orcs, Furballs. These guys are doing some cool on-chain stuff as well. The whole loot world is really mm-hmm. fascinating as well. But in the end, what ends up happening for most of these guys is that they're still taking two-year development cycles with their games, mm-hmm. right? And if you're doing that in crypto, you're going to miss the first wave. You need to figure out how do you build an unbundled sequence game design? And that's what's really hard, right? It's like you need to have generative assets first. Mm-hmm. Then you need to add generative world. Then you need to add generative gameplay UI, right? Or like the full gameplay UI. And it's a total different way of building a game, right? Because we've all been talking about Web2. No, we need all those components. Mm-hmm. Then we go to a live beta in a few countries. And then we launch this stuff. Here I'm saying like, no, I need one-fifth of the game. And I need a pretty website. 
mm-hmm. then, oh, I need the other one fifth of the game 30 days later. I need the other <laughs> one fifth of the game. And it's a very weird way to manage structure. Yeah. And I think that's what's also really hard for Web2 companies making that grind over Web3. And then just one more thing I wanted to dive into, just based on something you just mentioned, right? So, so you mentioned earlier, things like ads can be considered a bearish signal, actually. Um, I think it's it's kind of ironic, maybe to some people who don't follow this stuff as much, you know, but it is what it is. But other people might consider that bullish because you're advertising more, right? And then you brought up the example of like, hey, some like native like Web2 gaming CEOs being involved in a project that could be bullish, but <laughs> it also could be bearish. And so some of these things, you know, the exact same signal in the eyes of some folks might tell you something positive or something negative. And so a skeptic might just say, you know, everyone's just guessing, nobody has any idea what's going on. Is there actually nuance to this? And how would you, you know, tell somebody who is seeing this, that that interpretation is false and that there actually is a way to figure this stuff out? Yeah, I mean, it it does feel a little spray and pray at the moment mm-hmm. right now, which is, is very fair, but to be honest, we saw this in angel investing when seed investing was coming, mm-hmm. right? It was very much a spray and pray methodology. I think the key is still understanding that if you're going to take an approach to crypto in its current wave, you're not trying to snipe, you're trying to buckshot, right? Yeah. You're trying to spray into an area that is concise within variables that you believe are successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I can share is that there's absolutely great ways to do it. Like we have advisors on our team who actually use solid mental models, first principles on investment, the mm-hmm. diligence on an asset, and then they do long-term holds. Like one of the closest advisors to our pro- platform has over a hundred Clonex from mm-hmm. Mint, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, if you're not familiar, Clonex, one of the big projects from Artifact that got acquired by mm-hmm. Nike, um, you know, it's sitting at a 12 ETH floor, and this guy <laughs> literally minted a hundred three months ago or two and a half months ago, and is yet to sell a single one, right? Mm-hmm. Which is crazy. And right. sorry, just quickly for the listeners, what is that in fiat? So in fiat, each one's worth about $30,000 at a minimum. Yep. His probably, we, we we calculated recently, his probably holdings on those 100 is close to, I'd want to say around 3,000 ETH at the moment right mm-hmm. now. So something close between six to $8 million at yep. the moment right now in fiat, um, which is mind boggling. Yeah. And then here's the even other more mind boggling thing. The reason why he was investing into the project was that he started to realize that Artifact as an organization was going to sequence a lot of either airdrops or secondary whitelist access mm-hmm. based off their traits and the way they had dropped the Clonex. So not only was he able to make that from the primary asset, he was then airdropped at like day seven, there yep. was a space pod, which was like a virtual thing. He got a hundred space pods that were trading at one ETH, right? So that was a free $400,000 <laughs> at that time in the market, yep. right? And then... Three weeks later, they dropped something called the monolith, right? A one-to-one airdrop for holders that's trading at like, was that trading at five ETH at one point? Mm -hmm. This guy got 500 ETH airdrop to him of 1.5 to $2 million in value and still hasn't sold a single one, right? Because there's a strategy in what he's unfolding and where the value truly is, right? Mm -hmm. And I think in this market, it's understanding that, yes, it's very spray and pray at mint level, but you can do a lot of diligence to find projects that are less likely to run. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how you're trying to unfortunately optimize the model, which is such a shitty thing for me to tell the user. It's like, (laughs) limit how many times people steal your money, right? That's literally what I'm trying to convince the people, right? But it is unfortunately a rule of the game, right? And these are unfortunately where Web3 still has friction points, right? Mm -hmm. The barrier to entry is you need to lose a thousand dollars. Right, which is the shittiest barrier to entry I've ever heard. Yeah. Right? But it is how that game is played, right? Unfortunately, right? So what I try to share with people is that if you could start looking at advanced analytics, it's actually quite amazing mm-hmm. because everything is listed in blockchain data, right? You could actually see historical sales, who's holding, almost like a stock trader. Mm-hmm. You could actually make very smart bets. You mm-hmm. could really capture undervalued assets, or sell overvalued assets when they're necessary. So there is a art and a science Mm -hmm. to this, right? And there's a little bit of a variable of like, we don't know what the fuck's happening. (laughs) You kind of run with that. And the the whole like, we don't know what's gonna happen is kind of the beauty of crypto though, because those are the unknown 20 hundred X's that do come out. Mm -hmm. So it's brilliant because we're at this precipice of innovation happening on a daily basis. But because we know that's happening, it means that everyone's willing to FOMO on everything else, 
because they just don't want to be left out. Yeah. And that leads to a healthy and an unhealthy part of the ecosystem. And the best way I can explain it to the people is that if you can at least focus on the healthy, there's some magical stuff happening, not only on play to earn, like there's more interesting stuff right now happening in DeFi in general, to mm -hmm. be honest, right? But we're going to see a lot of that rollover to play to earn gaming and gaming in general over the next 12 to 24 months. Yeah, no, DeFi is a whole nother couple podcasts, so <laughs> we won't dive into that now. And, you know, having been unfortunately rugged a couple times, you know, I think it's great advice. So I'm also trying to figure out as well. But, you know, just shifting gears and sort of as a concluding question, right, you've been in this space for a while. You've been an early adopter and at the forefront of many things throughout your career. And so going forward, what do you want to accomplish that you have yet to accomplish? And what do you want your impact to be on this evolving space? Ooh, good question. Vision and goal of what we're trying to drive for is, as I kind of mentioned earlier, is how do we redefine the relationship between player and developer where we're both on the same side? Mm -hmm. I think that's really compelling where if you could build a business model that allows for both of those parties to be aligned and never in conflict or rarely in conflict, you unlock the next generation of gaming. You really do. And, and that's something that's compelling. And I think multiple people are building for it and someone's going to crack the code and will usher in a very interesting industry. The, the second thing that I'm maybe aiming for or I'm trying to drive for as well individually is that, you know, thankfully being in this game, I'm not focused on economic outcomes, economic mm -hmm. returns. What I am interested in understanding is like, what does a fair business structure look like? And that's something that is still revolving in my mind because what's so interesting about crypto is that you can layer, as we discussed, into royalties, into mint, into bonuses, into salary. And what I'm really intrigued is like, what does an equitable world look like for creators, right? And that's something that, you know, as we think through the creator economy, yeah, there's really great tools, but still the creator economy is really only being solved for like the top 10% of creators at the moment right now in the web two interface. Mm -hmm. I think in the web three interface, the bottom 90% have a very, very compelling chance. And it's just thinking about like, what am I driving towards? I want more humans to be part of the ownership class, right? That's really where it is, right? Like if you go to, you know, like I love Naval Ravikant, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, he starts off all his advice, really. It's like, you need to own something, right? That's the only way to true wealth, right? To a certain extent. And he's absolutely right, mm -hmm. right? But the problem is, is that less than, you know, less than 3% of the people are actually on ownership cap tables in the world. Mm -hmm. Web3 has an opportunity to change that, especially mm -hmm. if you create that structure. And I think that's really empowering where, if you can allow that, that's probably going to be the vehicle that could be one of the larger changes of wealth transfers in our timelines, right? It's more than just the L1 tokens. It's now how those L1 tokens are dispersed in value to build a relationship between the owners and non-owners, but allow non-owners to work and get to a scenario where ownership is within sight. And I think if you can do that, I think you create a very interesting world where 20% of the world are owners. What does that look like? I'm intrigued. I think there's more distribution of wealth. I think there's more distribution of ideas. And I think there's more distribution of concepts. So that's probably what I'm driving most towards, at least in terms of like my core vision and core goal. You know, outside of that, I think the only other thing that really drives me at this point is realistically trying to figure out what can make me a gamer again, right? Mm -hmm. So going back all the way to it is like, I don't want to design explicitly for myself, but I believe that the current interfaces of Web2 games are just not interesting to me anymore mm. for me personally, right? Mm -hmm. I think there's tons of value that they offer to the world. Mm -hmm. So I'm still kind of doing this as like my own personal chip. Like, what is a game that I play? What is a game that I'm excited by? And I haven't had a good answer for that for the last like six years, right? Which is kind of a surprising thing. So this is what drives me individually in terms of what I think this organization can be and what I believe like is the opportunity. And with that, you know, I think that you can get some really cool stuff on like entity structures. I'm also really interested in like governance. Mm -hmm. Like what does community governance mean? Like, you know, do you give community all the power? Do you give community sub power? Do they uh, vote on X and Y? Do they vote on Z? Like, I think all those things are going to be really interesting to uncover, right? DAO infrastructures in general too. So I hope that in those sequences that there's a way that we're able to help humanity, right? In an area where you know, the distribution of ideas, access to ideas and access to opportunity only grow 20X because of Web3. And if I could play a meaningful or even a minor role in that, I consider that a successful opportunity here to try. 
Awesome. Yeah, no, it's extremely exciting. You know, I, I was listening to some sort of podcast the other day and there was a quote like this person who had been following tech for a while had never seen uh, or, you know, they have seen, but it's been many years since they've seen a technological shift that has um, attracted so many of the most talented, you know, minds and developers and uh, as, as Web3. And so, you know, it seems to be a very, very uh, big shift, but yeah, I'll be, I'll be rooting for you. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. But you hit it right on the head with that last statement. It's like, it's nice when the other nine out of 10 people that I think are smart in the room are also <laughs> jumping into crypto. Gives me some assurances there. And I think that's something that really helped me cross, you know, like huge shout out to guys like Chris Dixon and mm -hmm. stuff like that, who've been pioneers on a lot of that language as well. And, and I think that's kind of where it gets so exciting is that my first few entrances into crypto back in three, four years, I don't think the builders were as exciting. Mm -hmm. Now I'm finding people I literally want to build with every day. I haven't had that feeling since honestly back in 2010, 2011, where it's like, I want to build this, I want to build this, I want to mm -hmm. build this. And the ideas keep coming. And I think that's the other thing that really drives me is like every single day, I just try to get better and learn more. And crypto really puts that on steroids, right? Like you feel you're like just drinking from the fire hose, you're behind constantly. And that's actually a really, really compelling feeling for me, right? Because then I know the opportunity velocity here is really exciting and hopefully something that we can all partake in, man. So I, I really appreciate this conversation, man. Really have fun here. Yeah, man. Thanks for taking the time.